Welcome back to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side of history, and those who lost. My name's Mark. Insert quippy, pithy thing here. And I'm joined by my best friend, Kevin. Thank you for that introduction. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll punch in a pithy thing. Maybe I'll just leave it as that. I kind of like it exactly like this. Yeah, okay, but we're leaving all of this in? All of it. Perfect. This week we're starting a, a series that I think is interesting and holds a lot of kind of poetic irony with the intro that we that we do so well every week. Uh, when we talk about forgotten people, people on the wrong side of history, and just the idea of footnotes in general, footnote is something that like it's still there, like it's something that gets mentioned, but as an aside, as a throwaway thing as opposed to a central thing and uh, a central person. And the interesting thing about who we're focusing on uh, this week and for the next three weeks in this series, uh, we're dealing with people who really, truly believed that they were focal points of history, that they were centerpieces that uh, have a, like an inexorable grasp on, on importance and and that like the world is going to be formed in their image or by their hand or something insane like that. And uh, th- uh, not totally, not, not quite the way that they think or expect it to be. Uh, we remember them, but I think it may not be what, what they want to be known for. So this week we're starting with who? We're starting with a man who certainly had a sense of his grandeur, perhaps the delusions of his own grandeur. A man named Charles Guiteau, who if that name springs to your mind, you might associate him with the assassination of James A. Garfield, a often forgotten about president in history. I mean, I only remember who James A. Garfield was because when I used to sit in my fourth period, fourth grade class, I happened to sit next to a poster of all the presidents, and I never paid any attention to the class. I just stared at the poster of all the presidents, and I noticed that Garfield noticed that Garfield's picture only had one year underneath. He was president from 1881 to hyphen. And I always wonder what that meant. And I noticed a few other presidents had shortened terms. Turns out that Garfield's term was artificially shortened. And if we want to talk about a man who thought that he was something special and he was a chosen person in history, Charles Guiteau fits the bill perfectly. And the story today is going to be less about James A. Garfield, a man who I learned was actually quite amazing. Came from poverty, worked his way through school, went from janitor to the head of a college, became a Civil War general, was chosen personally by Abraham Lincoln to become a congressman and then was chosen again at the Republican National Convention of 1880 to become president, chosen by the entire country nearly unanimously in a fairly interesting story. No, instead we're going to talk not about James A. Garfield, that amazing man, a man who was sadly forgotten because he was killed so early in his presidency. We're going to talk about Charles Guiteau. The man who cut his head off with a large wooden execution device, right? Charles, Charles Guillotine. 
definitely Charles Gillick. I was see you stepped on my joke. I was gonna call it the Gatoa team. The Gatoa team. <laughs> Charles Gatoa wishes he had anything of that quality to his name. And the question I think is really gonna come up in this episode so is dumb. whether or not Charles Gatoa was insane. That joke was insane. That, that joke was definitely insane. <laughs> this is why I don't talk a lot during the podcast. <laughs> okay. So to start this story, to start this story, I had the privilege a few summers ago to travel to Washington, D.C. with my wife to go to the Smithsonian Museum. Um, as someone who has an interest in history and science, that was definitely a place to go. We went there during the summer, and we actually lucked out. It wasn't a hot, muggy landscape like most people describe it as. It poured the first day and was gorgeous for the rest of the time. But we stayed at a little Airbnb in one of those old colonial cottages, those row houses, actually is probably the right term for it, that are all crammed next to Capitol Hill. A little one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment that probably cost a million and a half dollars. It was a great place to stay because it allowed us to walk to all the Smithsonian Museums, which were free. We saved a ton of money. And we kept walking back and forth across um, the Capitol and the Capitol Mall and all the different monuments. And within the first hour that we're there, we land in a uh, red-eye flight, and we're waiting to get into our Airbnb or walk around carrying our suitcases, which were making an incredibly loud like clacking sound on the uneven pavement. The roads are actually old there. One of the first things we experienced, I think it was about an hour into us being in D.C., is an incredibly large, loud motorcade goes roaring by, heading toward the Capitol. And we realized, oh, that's pre the president. That's the president's motorcade. This convoy of six or seven black limousines with police officers in front and behind, filled with Secret Service agents, filled with as much technology and intel as you can possibly imagine to keep the president safe and to make sure that the president was known. He was there and he was guarded. And it happens so often, these motorcades, that we figured that there must be a motorcade for the vice president two or maybe some of the other members of Congress. I'm actually not sure, but they just kept going back and forth all day. And I started to look around in D.C. and beyond all the monuments and things, you see guardhouses. You see concrete pylons around every government building. And you realize that D.C. is a bunker. It is very well protected and very well guarded. And that's what the modern office of the presidency is. It's this incredibly important man this man who has all of this power, this influence, to shape the United States that still is the most powerful country in the world. And with that great power comes great responsibility, that classic quote, but also great vulnerability because the president is a man just like everyone else. And if someone decides to try to kill the president, it's actually not that difficult if he's unguarded. This story is going to seem bizarre to us in our modern history, our modern time, because even though recent presidents have had assassination attempts on them where someone fired at them on the street, Ronald Reagan, Gerald Ford, and they're within the last 30, 40 years, there was a slew of aides and Secret Service agents and police to immediately capture and tackle the would-be assassin. In our story today with Charles Guiteau and James Garfield, it's very different. There were none of those people there. Garfield stood waiting for a train at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station on July 2nd, simply standing next to his Secretary of State, his friend, 
who had accompanied him simply to see him off. He was alone, for all intents and purposes, standing out in the public with no one there to support him. He had spoken to a police officer on his way into the railroad, railroad station, but he had spoken to him to simply ask, was the train late? And as he waited on the platform, Charles Guiteau came up behind him into the women's compartment, why the, everyone in all of these stories calls it the women's compartment, I guess that matters, and he fires two bullets. One grazes Garfield's shoulder, and the other buries itself in his back. And Guiteau just turns and runs. So I, I knew that like once upon a time, the office of the president was more like public servant and less functionally demigod celebrity status than it is now and has been for the last, progressively more over the last 20 years or so. You kind of assume that there's always been at least some amount of like a bodyguard. Like when you send, even before this point in history, when you're sending money across the country in a stagecoach, you're sending it with dudes with guns in an armored car being pulled by horses, but it's still an armored car and it still has people who are tasked with do not let anyone even look at this funny or else do something about it. To have, I guess, I guess one, this is a, a great example of like the meta learn from your mistakes process that the country has gone through of like, hey, we should probably not let polarizing leaders unprotected into a world where not everyone voted for them. And, but two, it's, I guess I just, I go, how dramatically has the public's perception of the president changed over, over the years in, in, in America? Like, would it have been normal to see the president out in the streets at this point in, in history? Uh, would people react to him the way they would react to the president now? Would they even react to him as a low-level celebrity? Or would you react to him like if you saw your doorman every morning? Like, if you saw him at the grocery store where you go, oh, I didn't expect to see you here. It's good to see you. That kind of thing. Like a, I know who you are, even though I don't know who you are kind of feeling. We can think of the president as a pedestrian, a very important pedestrian, but just another powerful man on the streets of a powerful city. And mind you, this is not something that they expected. They did not expect the president to be assassinated they being just the people of the age. He was the second president assassinated. This is after Abraham Lincoln. He's, this is 15 years after Lincoln's assassination. The country- Only, only 15. Only 15. So in the Six, grand scheme- 16. To go from zero assassinations to two in 15 years, it makes sense that after one you'd go, well, it was a very polarizing time, that kind of thing. The end of the Civil War. Yeah. I'm assuming this is the one that starts, that, that triggers some security implementations. It does not. Okay, then. It's after the third assassination in 1900 of William McKinley that allows Theodore Roosevelt to become president that they finally institute the Secret Service as we know it. The view of the country was very different from what we view now. The president was an important and powerful man. He was given lots of respect. He was clearly the most powerful man in the country. You know, there was no prime minister-esque kind of position. He, it was the president. He didn't have as much control over policy and as much of a position of importance as now. But still, he was the man. 
but people felt that the president was supposed to be a, a you know a first among equals kind of position. He was supposed to be able to have people come see him. He was and a civil servant. He was a civil servant. He had to have an open door policy. He didn't have a massive team. James Garfield had one secretary. There was a household staff at the White House, but those were just like employees, like cooks and plumbers to help maintain a building of importance. The president himself just had an office, much more like a CEO of a company. In fact, probably less guarded than a CEO of a major company nowadays because they have security. There were police officers at the White House, but not in the, not to guard him. So many people would go and see Garfield for reasons we'll talk about soon, and they were expected to be able to get his audience to the point where when he first becomes president, he complains about the open door policy relentlessly because he couldn't get any work done. So many people wanted to talk to him, and that was the opinion of the age. You could go and speak to the president. That's how equal Americans were. They knew that this could lead to an assassination. But they felt that an assassination, to paraphrase um, Candace Millard, who I will mention her book more later, called The Destiny of the Republic, to paraphrase Candace Millard, the American public felt that an assassination attempt would be more like a lightning strike. Okay, it might happen. You go walk around in a thunderstorm, lightning might hit you. But that's a risk they were willing to take for their ideals. It's a very different way of looking at the world now. Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's a conversation that people still wrestle with uh, following 9-11, uh, like the implementation of the Patriot Act. And even as recently as a couple of years ago, the government demanding that Apple turn over like a backdoor security thing for them to do anti-terrorism things and all that. It's that question of we understand that risk comes with uh, accessibility or risk comes with privacy or whatever the, the thing on the other side of that argument is. But it's simply that, quite, I guess, Americans at the time, they were going, yeah, something could happen to the president, but at what cost do we want to protect him? Like, do, is, is it worth having a president who is safe if nobody can speak to him? Is it worth having a president if he's fully disengaged from public? Their answer was no. Yeah, no kidding. And history may or may not show that that was the right decision. That sounds like a president that's more beholden to the people than we have these days. And that has its benefits. Yeah, exactly. And it has its it has its problems mm -hmm. because the assassination attempts in this era succeed. The assassination attempts, with John F. Kennedy's exception, since this era, don't. Yeah. Practically every president was shot at from Roosevelt on. There was an assassination attempt on Truman. There was an assassination attempt on Ford, Reagan, and I'm probably missing a few others. Yeah. That's a and, lot of people. And there's, I'm sure there's still attempts now, but they just get hit so early. They get taken down so early in the planning stages or, or even maybe the execution stage that you just don't hear about it. It's kind of like how banks have a policy that uh, there's media blackout on uh, bank robberies and armored truck attacks because they're so frequent that if you, that if you, uh, if you reported on it every time a bank was robbed or an armored truck was attacked in California, it would be almost daily. And then you get copy exactly. copycat attacks. People would realize it's not that hard. You get, well, the bank industry is not going to like us now. Yeah, we may have to cut this. I also am only 70% sure that that's true. <laughs> <laughs> we can simplify this story pretty easily, though. We can talk about the power of the president to a great extent. We can talk about the president as an important man. In the end... 
we're talking about the murder of one human being by another. And Charles Guiteau was put on trial for murder, and spoilers, was executed for it a year after he murdered Garfield in July of 1881. He was executed in 1882. I want to present this story somewhat chronologically, as chronologically as it's possible for a story that has required background information for us to understand. Because what I want to do is to look at Charles Guiteau, look at his decisions, look at the era and the culture that he made these decisions in, the atmosphere that he lived, to try to determine what level of culpability did he have. That is what interests me in history, is I want to know why people did what they did. Because we are not free individuals as much as we all think. We are completely controlled, or at least steered, by our environment. We are individuals within a system. And that can, that's its own philosophical discussion. Tune in next week for the footnotes, hot takes on free will. Does it exist? <laughs> if we go back to 1881, because 1881 is when all of this goes down, we're going to go back to the 8th of June. Because the 8th of June is when Guiteau made the fateful decision. He says that God informed him that it was his task, it was his job to assassinate the president. And then he lists a variety of reasons that we'll get to that were more secular. But I like, on the I like of, that God told me so was like reason number one. And it is always like, reason number one when he talks about things. Yeah, but I, I don't know what's more amusing. It's like all, 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 all good assassination attempts start with God told me to. But it's fun that he was like, but here's the other reasons. In case that one doesn't really grab you the way I hope it will, here's my opinions on the tax plan. <laughs> exactly and you, it is petty things like that oh my god that makes me so happy not tax plan but you get the point <sighs> anyway on the 8th of june guiteau had just borrowed ten dollars for from a long old acquaintance that's something guiteau would do often he'd borrow money and not return or pay back the money guiteau borrowed ten dollars because he needed to pay his boarding house fees you can think of a boarding house kind of a cross between a hotel and a dormitory that don't really exist anymore um, like a hostel people used to travel from town to town they would stay in these big buildings where they'd rent a room and you get like a fresh breakfast um not the same level of service as a hotel more than just like sleeping on you know in some cotton in like a shelter but guiteau would go to particularly well respected boarding houses and try to live there for as long as possible without paying his bill and so he, he was being chased at this point by a, a matron who wanted his money and so he had to go and borrow money from a guy to pay that. And then he also took some of the money and went to a gun shop in D.C., which is, at the time, it was like a block from the White House. And he goes in knowing he's going to attempt an assassination on the president. And his idea when he goes into this gun shop is to buy the largest caliber gun he can find because he knows nothing about guns. He's never shot a gun before. I don't believe he was of age to fight in the Civil War, but I know he was right around that age. He just didn't, because most of the, most men in the North, North actually didn't. He's from Ohio. But he goes and buys the largest caliber gun he can find. He decides to buy one with a large ivory handle, because he knows that after he assassinates the president, it'll look good in the museum. This is a man who knows what he's doing. This is a man who knows what he wants to be doing. A lot of this does not imply knows what he's doing, but it de he, definitely, he definitely has an image for what he wants this to be. He knows the importance of the act. Yeah, yeah. He goes down to the riverside, the Potomac River, 
very big, wide river. After buying a gun from a gun store a block away from the White House. And then he Excellent. proceeds to fire it to practice his aim. He shoots the river, he shoots a tree, he shoots a rock, and he feels confident that he can hit a target, you know, 10 feet from him. Hold on, Kito got to have a training montage? This guy, this guy really does know what his narrative is going to be. Okay, now I cannot think of this without thinking of Kito like running around to the Rocky theme music, firing <laughs> his revolver at a rock. No, no, that's the wrong song. If anything, this is the best use of, he's a maniac, maniac. <laughs> that is a good use of that. So we need to step a little bit back into the future because there has to be a reason beyond divine inspiration for why Guito made that decision to buy the gun to assassinate Garfield. When Guito shot Garfield, he called out a very specific and very odd phrase. He called out, I am a stalwart of stalwarts, or I'm the stalwart of the stalwarts, which without knowing what that term means and who are these stalwarts, you cannot understand why Guito did it and who Guito was. Because the stalwarts and James Garfield are directly related to each other. And there's a reason he picks off Garfield. Other than the fact that Garfield was the president. Garfield being the president is less important than it may seem. Guito had no ill will against Garfield. Not much, at least. He was angry at factions of the Republican Party. So James A. Garfield became president by winning the election of 1880, which would really remind you of some of these current elections by being very close very divided, with the Electoral College playing a much bigger part than the popular vote. So, for example, in the election of 1880, Garfield beat um, Hancock, the Democrat, by less than 2,000 votes nationwide. So the popular vote was decided by like 1,900 votes, which is razor thin. But he won about 2 to 1 in the Electoral College. Because they all knew that practically every state that mattered in this point in history, Ohio and Pennsylvania and New York, those were the states that had all the votes. Those states really mattered. If you flip two of them, you win. And that's what happened. Garfield flipped two of them and he won. There was a very vicious campaign. But even within the Republican Party, because the Republican Party had been in power for so long after the Civil War, there were no Democrats elected after the Civil War until after the president, after Garfield, that that party knew it had a lot of power. And what happens when a party has consistent power is they start to split. It has happened in democracy after democracy. And what the Republican Party did is it split into two groups. One group was called the stalwarts. The other group was called the half-breeds. How people came up with these names, I do not know. Yeah, did they, they picked half-breeds for themselves? I'm not sure. No, oh, fair enough. It's, you know, when names like this come up in a political context, it usually has some form of little anecdotal story behind it but yeah. this is one thing I, I, I don't remember about this okay but what's so important one of the parties are. is the stalwarts so one of the groups is the stalwarts and they had recently had a republican president ulysses s grant who was a classic stalwart the stalwarts you can think of are the more traditional wing of the republican party the more conservative wing of the conservative party at this time in history the parties aren't what you think of now the democrats are liberal though Republicans are conservative. No, they both had a conservative and a liberal wing. Both parties did, the Republicans and the Democrats. So this is the more conservative wing of the Republican Party. And their most important belief was that the spoils system, 
the patronage system that had existed since Andrew Jackson must continue in politics. And what that means is the country was completely controlled politically by these bosses, these important political figures that without in many cases having a political position themselves like these weren't always congressmen or senators though some were some of the most famous ones were these are men who worked behind the scenes in these informal web networks of patronage if you help me i'll help you quid pro quo arrangements and they ran the political system by saying okay you are helping me get out the vote you are getting your you know group of 50 miners to vote for my candidate Okay, when a position opens up, I'm going to give you that position. There was no merit system for government positions. And it's this, all favor-based appointments. Favor-based appointments. And didn't necessarily mean that people who were qualified were in those positions. Right. Most of the time, they were fairly qualified because to get into the powerful positions, they had to be competent. Yeah, and there's an honestly, there's an argument to be made that like, it's not the worst system because if you are responsible for getting a bunch of people to elect this person, you are clearly a good representative of that group now in the political party. And not great, but not not horrible. It seems corrupt. Yes. That's the oh, word yeah, well, that pops to your mind. Yes, and, other, other than it being corrupt. And it, it is. But it also does work. Mm-hmm. Mind you, a ton of countries, and obviously the United States, that's how it runs. That's how human beings have run political systems since political systems existed. So this wing, the Republican Party, the stalwart wing, that's their platform. They're going to nominate people that want to be a part of that group. And there really were some bad examples of true corruption because of that wing of the party during Ulysses S. Grant's presidency. One such example was the guy who would become Garfield's vice president and later president, Chester A. Arthur. He was nominated by a senator, the most powerful Republican, a senator named Roscoe Conkling in New York, to be the New York Custom House uh, manager. At this point in history, with very few taxes, import-export taxes were how the United States had its money, like its federal government was funded by the New York's Custom House, the port of New York. And the guy who controlled that was expected to wet his beak in that role. It was straight-up corruption, among numerous other accounts. And so these are people who... They like that. That's their party. At the same time, you start to see the development of a more modern form of government where the other group, the half-breeds, they want their Republican Party to back a meritocracy. They want any civil servant to pass a test, to not have a criminal record. They want people to be judged by an independent civil service commission that will make sure that people don't do those things aren't Chester A. Arthur taking money from the tax system in New York and being famous for his ability to shop well. Ironically, Chester A. Arthur will pass the legislation to institute that. Interesting. That's a very interesting story. Yeah. That is not our story. Closing the door behind you. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. So it's within this polarity, this bipolarity of the Republican Party that Charles Guiteau inserts himself. And we have to remember that in this time in history, people got government jobs by campaigning, by giving speeches, by becoming the guy on the street that's walking around knocking on doors and passing out pamphlets. And that's what Charles Guiteau does. He writes a speech that it's called Grant versus Hancock. 
because at this point he was a stalwart supporting Grant. Grant hadn't Grant was the stalwart that they wanted in the Republican National Convention of 1880. He was that party's person. And Guiteau was that group. He was a part of that group, so he is campaigning for Grant, assuming Grant's going to win, and become the nominee for the Republican Party in the 1880 election. So you have, you have uh, Guiteau campaigning, canvassing, doing all that work for Grant. Is Guiteau hoping that he gets carried up the ladder with Grant like so many of these other people have been? 100%. Okay, so he's wanting political office. He's wanting political power for himself. Yes. Okay. He writes a speech called Grant versus Hancock, which is 100% plagiarized pretty much. And it doesn't really, it's not a bad speech necessarily, but it's just not wonderful. He, he does go out and give some speeches, but he was not a dynamic person. He was not someone who would carry a room. He would frequently start speeches and speak for five minutes, then stop and complain about the room, complain about the heat, complain about the audience and walk away. But afterwards, people would ask him, well, what happened? And he would say, I gave a wonderful speech. And you'll see that disconnect more and more and more. The Republican National Convention of 1880 became very divided. Neither side could get their nominee elected. The stalwarts had Ulysses S. Grant. The half-breeds had uh, James G. Blaine, who would become Garfield's Secretary of State, the man who was standing next to Garfield when Garfield was shot and would later lose the next election. Um, as Republican nominee. So James G. Blaine is throughout this story as kind of a like a bystander, like a secondary character. So I'll keep mentioning Blaine. He shows up a couple more times. We should do an episode on him. I don't think he's that interesting. Ah, he's not even interesting enough for us. No, he's got a great beard. That's about it. Audio listeners don't know this, but I am now fully invested in the Blaine episode. And I'm very jealous of Blaine. So there's the division between those two candidates. And the way conventions used to work back in the day was all of the different states would nominate a few important people to be their electors, and they would vote for whoever they wanted. And oftentimes the states would vote in blocks. And you'd have these like in 300 to 250 to 20 votes, and you know, split votes after ballot, after ballot, after ballot. Well, during that convention, they were so split, and there was a third uh, candidate in there that was kind of adding that extra division that they went into the 30, 35th ballot just constantly trying to swing the vote somehow. People were threatening each other. People were bribing each other. There was all sorts of backroom deals going on. When you see pictures of these conventions, they're always hazy. And it's not because the cameras were bad. It's because there was just that much cigar smoke and cigarette smoke in these <laughs> rooms. And there's in, it would remind you like of a theater, like a real decked-out theater with tons of people everywhere arguing and yelling. It looked like the stock market floor. Or modern-day uh, UK Parliament. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> it's what the UK Parliament just kept doing. Yeah, just getting everyone in a room together and just shouting each other down and threatening each other and all that. Exactly. And this is just one party. Mm -hmm. Eventually, though, someone throws in the idea of James A. Garfield because he had a history of being just a good man, a respected man. He never in his life put himself up for election. He never campaigned for his own election. That was This isn't too uncommon in the time period, but usually there was a little bit of going out and trying to get the vote. Garfield would always have people come to him. In fact, he had reporters come to him during the actual election of 1880, and they had to talk to him because he just felt that was beneath him. I hope that doesn't mean he seems arrogant. Not at all. He was a man of really high integrity 
is what I've read. Any The only people who I've read that actually studied him in detail, like that book I mentioned earlier, Destiny of the Republic, which is the book I'd recommend for everybody who is interested in this story. It's by Candace Miller. It is wonderful. It's right in front of me. She really goes into depth about Garfield, and it it's a huge tragedy in history that he died the way he did because he was amazing. He was a good man whose life is cut short. But the Republicans, seeing that integrity, nominate him to be president. And in the 36th ballot, or 35th ballot, 30, high 30s, he wins. He never put himself forward. Now suddenly, Guiteau, on his end, is stuck in a situation of having a speech that says Grant versus Hancock. So what does Guiteau do? He literally, with an X, crosses out Grant and handwrites the word Garfield over Grant. And he now has Garfield versus Hancock, which he proceeds to read verbatim during Garfield's campaign. He begins to harass the Republican of important party leaders to try to read his speech because he knows the kind of impact it will have to win Garfield the election. He knows if he wins Garfield the election, he will receive an important position. So he actually manages to get himself up on stage during the actual campaigning at the end of the convention and stuff where Garfield is the nominee and he reads the speech next to Garfield. And you can tell there's a twist in his mind right then because that's when he thinks, listen, I'm up here next to Garfield. I'm giving a speech to all these people. I receive my applause. If he wins the election, it's because of me. I'm the reason he won. So he's a weird combination of <clears throat> not just a like shameless opportunist who is just kind of grasping at any possible like rope that's traveling upwards, but also he has like some serious delusions of grandeur, especially considering what a shameless opportunist he is. I didn't I don't think he'd see himself as a shameless opportunist simply because that's what people did then. It's the, it's the degree difference, right? It's he did one tiny thing and expects a hundred good things. But not just one tiny thing. He makes the world's most minute change to the speech that he'd already plagiarized anyways and goes, oh, now it's about Garfield. Look what I've done. Take me with you. Like, exactly. When I, say, when I say shameless, I don't necessarily mean self-aware. I just mean... I think that there's definitely no shame in what he's doing. I think he feels no shame. Whether whether or not he's a whether or not he has the ability to look inward and identify whether or not there should be shame is almost a non-starter. He just he sees it as like, oh, this is what I need to do next. I think that leads us well into the next part of the story. Because as we go through June of 1881 when Guiteau is stalking the president Marie assassinates him in july early july july 2nd and he buys his gun on the 8th of june so there's a month of him literally stalking the president he would sit outside the white house and just stare at it at this time garfield would go on walks on his own on the street just walking about like a pedestrian and guiteau would follow him with his gun on the other side of the street waiting for an opportunity to shoot him, trying to find the right place. There's one example on what's probably the 15th of June. It's a weird discrepancy in the actual uh, police report, which the dates don't match, but it's probably the 15th of June because it's a Sunday. 
Garfield goes to church. Well, Gateau's sitting outside at the White House, simply staring at the White House. Total creep status. Mm-hmm. And he gets up and follows Garfield to the church. And you can kind of still see where the church is today. I looked up on the map of D.C. And it's really close, really close to the White House. It, it doesn't really exist anymore, as far as I can tell. Closer than the gun shop? Uh, probably actually about the same distance. <laughs> They're really close, <laughs> just in different directions. Um, but Garfield gets into the church, and Guiteau actually joins the service and sits behind Garfield. With the gun. With the gun. And apparently Guiteau got distracted because he, Guiteau was a very religious man, and Guiteau was getting angry at the preacher and was disagreeing with the preacher and actually starts to heckle the preacher by the end of it. And so instead of shooting Garfield, he heckles the preacher. And Garfield actually remembered Guiteau from that weird incident because he was such a bizarre and obnoxious man in the church service after Garfield shot. Oh, you don't mean you don't mean recognizes him from standing on stage with him at the convention. No, he recognizes him afterwards after he's been shot. Garfield lives for uh, over two months after his assassination, which we'll get into. But yeah. he recognizes him later, being like, "This guy was weird." Oh, and he shot me. But he doesn't he doesn't recognize him from the speech. No, he has he no gave. idea who he is. Interesting. So that has got to be stoking the flame as well of this resentment is. Gateau believes, oh, my speech was such a foundational cornerstone of you getting elected, and I can follow you every day, and you don't even see me. You know what? I've never thought of that. You would think Gateau's importance and his sense of self-importance, it might have been harmed by that, because he does describe getting progressively more angry yeah, over it's, the course of this month. It's that thing of going, following him around, going like, recognize me, recognize me, recognize me. Do you have any idea who I am? Do you have any idea how important I am? You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for me. And you never talked to him. And, yeah, exactly. Guiteau never talked to Garfield. No, that's, my, that's my point. Is, is It sounds like in Guiteau's mind, he shouldn't have to go up and say hi to Garfield. Garfield should, see, should walk out the front door of the building that Guiteau put him in by rights and say, oh my God, old friend, it's so good to see you. Thank you for making me the president. That sounds like how Guiteau's mind would be working. And the more time he spends near the president the more time passes without the president ever jogging his memory to Gateau even the fact that he could be there every day and the president wouldn't even go oh I see you every day he's that unremarkable to the president and that has got to be infuriating what's worse is Garfield really should know who Gateau is because they knew of him more than they knew him because though Gateau was following him around and there's a good chance that they were able to see each other I am somewhat, I know that Gateau was trying to kind of hide to a certain extent. Okay. But I think he is also not hiding himself too well if he's, you know, heckling a, heckling a preacher. A, yeah. But Garfield and Gateau met a bunch of times in early 1881, and we'll get to that. But what Gateau does in this church after getting distracted is he recognizes a way that he can shoot Garfield through the window. Garfield has a seat in the booth, and so he's going to return the next Sunday and shoot him then. Well, he returns. Um, he wants to return the next Sunday, but instead Garfield um, goes onto a train and goes to Ohio temporarily, and he doesn't go back to church that next Sunday. And Guiteau goes to the train station the Saturday before to shoot Garfield, but unfortunately for Guiteau, he says Garfield was helping his sick wife, Lucretia, up into the train and since his wife had just been sick really sick like on death's door for a couple of months and it was in the papers and it was widely spread 
Guiteau described it as not wanting to basically kill Garfield and cause Lucretia to die because she was so weak and frail, air quotes. That's his actual term. He was afraid that the shock of killing Garfield would hurt his wife, and he didn't want to hurt his wife. That's his that... established reason for why he didn't shoot wow. Garfield on that day, which is in mid-June. Wow. And at this point, we got to talk about the character and the upbringing of Guiteau a little bit. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Because he just shows up, literally shows up, feeling like he is chosen out of nowhere. At the Republican National Convention, he had no role in politics before that. He simply shows up. Here is the really brief version of Guiteau's life. Guiteau was a man from a particularly strong religious background. His father was a strict but devout man. His father was a follower of a very, very bizarre preacher by the name of Noise, N-O-Y-E-S, that started a community called the Oneida community. If you're thinking of the word Oneida, and you're like, why do I recognize that word? It's because the community that I'm about to talk about became, became Oneida Limited, the silverware company. All the silverware you've probably ever bought is Oneida. Wait, for real? Yeah. From this like weird religious cult? Oh, yeah. So this part just gets great. So Guiteau's father was not a part of the Oneida community, but the Oneida community is one of the very first free love communes in the world. In 19th century, we're talking 1860s and a little earlier than that, uh, I think it's in Ohio, the Oneida community, or uh, Western New York, it's probably Western New York, New York, was a group of a couple hundred uh, men and women who practiced open marriages, basically. Everyone was married to everybody else. And the preacher, man, again, named Noise, was the, the main driver of it. They were pacifistic. Everyone was required to work together. And true cult-like status, they would have criticisms where people would come together into a room in their little close-knit groups that the, the community was made from. And they would just criticize, criticize, criticize to try to basically beat people down and make sure that everyone stayed close-knit. They weren't that bad. I mean, they, they weren't like what you think of as a cult in a more modern sense because people could freely leave without any repercussions. Guiteau's father was— You just couldn't take your silverware with you? No, not at all. Guiteau probably did. Guiteau's father, though, was associated with the man who started this community, though he wasn't in the community himself. From a pretty young age, Guiteau was a, um, a bad student, just a kind of— uninspiring guy. He was kind of a short, scrawny guy. His eyes are too far apart. If you look at a picture of him, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, he does not look inspiring. Um, and Guiteau is sent away to school. He can't even get in. He fails into school, so he decides to go to the Oneida community. And upon going to the Oneida community for its this amazing free love commune, Guiteau felt that he was more important than everybody else. He's in a cult, a cult of people who are expected to do even the most menial tasks. Everyone works in the fields. Everyone cleans the toilets. Everyone, you know, cleans out the horse stall. Everyone does everything. Guito refused. And he would refuse because he felt that he had a mission that was more important than cleaning a toilet. He was sent, in his mind, or like divinely inspired, to do something greater. His very presence at this community benefited them. Why would he be the one doing those things? As a result, they all hated him. In a free love commune, 
no one would have sex with Charles Guiteau. And during the <laughs> and during their criticism sessions, they would kind of only criticize him. That's amazing. Because no one liked him. That's amazing. That's amazing. He's oh my gosh. He's the guy that no one likes in the community, literally predicated on loving everybody. Exactly. That's and amazing. He managed to live there for a couple of years before finally getting fed up and leaving. And then he went yeah, to he got fed up. He got of fed course, up. of course. They actually nicknamed him Charles Geetout because of this. That is clever. It is clever. Uh, he does return, and he receives the same treatment, and then he leaves for good eventually. But you know, it's from pretty early on that Guiteau is a famous, just unpleasant person. Guiteau starts his life as a more private citizen, a more normal private citizen, by attempting to become a lawyer. He actually succeeds at this by passing a three-question exam where he gets two of the questions right. A friend of his family, um, which actually has a couple lawyers in it, including the man who would later um, represent him in his trial, which was his uh, brother-in-law, pitied him and wanted to see him be a success. So they gave him the easiest bar exam of all time, and he manages to pass and become a lawyer. When he's a lawyer, he actually goes into collections where someone hasn't paid their bill, and so he represents their legal documents saying that they now owe that bill, and they would pay him, and he would take a small cut, and then he would give that back to his clients. Well, he would never give the money back to his clients. So he was basically just stealing from his clients, and he would have to bounce around different little towns, consistently stealing or at least ripping off his clients. At the same time, he gets a nice inheritance from uh, his grandfather or some other dist- more distant family member. And his life is actually stable. And he seems to be doing well. He's got a nice house and he gets married. And for about a solid 10 years, um, Guiteau is a normal contributing member of society. While he's working through the money that was left to him. Yeah. And, you know, saying it that way, it, he's defrauding people and he does eventually lose his ability to be a lawyer he only defended one case and he just spent the entire time yelling at the jury about philosophy and the nature of god and he uh, was horribly abusive to his sister to his wife and his sister um his wife at this time wants a divorce and so Guiteau, in order to get a divorce goes and uh, pays a prostitute so that they would allow him to divorce under the laws at the time and his life begins to fall apart The dude was in a free love commune and later in his life had to then pay for sex. In order to get divorced. Yes. I just, there's a lot of poetic irony to this guy's life. He begins a a career as a traveling evangelist that does not work because he he wouldn't give full speeches. His ideas were basically the same as the free love commune that he came from. He purely plagiarized the work of that um, preacher, Noise. And his money starts to run out. He starts to fall into abject poverty. At this point, people are pretty aware that he's starting to show some signs of mental illness, mental distress. And so his wife calls, uh, his, his wife is long gone at this point, sorry. His sister has him come live with him frequently, uh, live with her frequently so that she can take care of him. And even she has to send him away after he um, picks up an ax and tries to kill her or in her mind tried to kill her all he did was hold it above her and stare with these really creepy eyes but she figured that that was good enough and she tries to get him committed instead he escapes and begins to bounce around 
um, as an evangelist, bounce around as basically a petty criminal all over the Northwest, at that time the Northwest, like Ohio, New York, and he eventually ends up in Boston. And that's in Boston in 1880 is when he decides to become a politician. And the actual pivotal moment that made him feel like he was the one that was chosen to just solve the problems of the Republican Party were the fact that he, was the fact that he was on a steamer, a boat, that slammed into another boat while he was on his way to Boston. And the boat that his boat hit exploded and sank. And it was a horrible tragedy. One of those things that was in the papers for a long time. And there was a huge, you know, let's get the people out of the water kind of thing. They were finding bodies for days. It was a big deal at the time. But he was spared but he because was spared. he's important. Because he's important. When we return to June of 1881, as Guiteau is stalking Garfield, we begin to see the kind of person that is about to commit murder. A week away little over a week away from committing the assassination of a president. Guiteau follows Garfield, his son, and a U.S. Marshal on a carriage ride, trying to find an opportunity to shoot him. And we realize just how persistent this man is in trying to find his opportunity. And that's how Garfield would recognize Guiteau as an incredibly persistent individual. When Garfield becomes president in that razor-thin election, he sets up his office with his new staff in March of 1881. It took a long time to move people back in the day. And in that complicated, bustling movement of different political appointees and political positions, still well within the spoils system, was Charles Guiteau. Outside the White House on a daily basis at the beginning of Garfield's term were hundreds of political office seekers that every single day would pester him to find a job in the administration. These are people who had stumped for him, that had gotten him a couple of votes in their little town, that had no other recourse but to come to D.C. and bother him about a job. Many of them did not deserve one at all. But the office of the president at that time was open. And it was open specifically so that Garfield could speak to people like this. He would speak to important people. He would speak to unimportant people. Guiteau begins writing letters to Garfield at this time, expecting to receive the ambassador position to Austria. Or at first, the consulship of Paris. He first writes to the previous president's secretary of state saying, do ambassadors keep their jobs in a new administration? Because I want this one, but I like the guy who's in that position. Interesting. For somebody so self-involved and self-important, that's a very bizarre juxtaposition. Like the obvious opportunist of it all. Hey, does that guy keep his job because I want his job? But also... He's good at his job. If he's keeping it, then... I don't want to bother him. Yeah. Guito felt he was friends with these people. Yeah, that's fair, yeah. He felt he was friends with Garfield. He begins writing lots of letters to um, the Secretary of State, James G. Blaine, because Blaine is more or less the guy who controls the ambassadorial and consulship positions. 
So he's bothering Garfield, but then he starts to bother Blaine. And he's writing them lots of letters saying, I wrote this speech. I stumped for you. I'm the reason you won. I'm your friend. I am a lawyer. I'm a Christian. He always ends in these short declarative statements. And the letters, I, I've seen the letters, I've read the letters, they're in this beautiful penmanship, which stood out to me because that is not what I expected. I expected, you know, the scrawling, The scrawlings of a madman. No, it's gorgeous. Well, yeah, because this guy, this guy's only best foot forward. His only, his only real merits in the world are convincing people that he is deserving. He has nothing. He has no actual accomplishments that make him deserving. His only, his only merits are surface deep. And so, of course, his handwriting is good because his ideas aren't good. It probably helps that he had spent most of the last twenty years using boarding house and hotel stationery to help to project a sense of importance that allowed him to get loans from people which is how he survived that's fair he was basically he owed everyone he'd ever met money and this is exactly along those same lines but in these letters he's writing declaring his importance and that the job he would like not not a request really he he's he's picking right right of of the jobs i am deserving of this is my preference. And we don't know why he shifts from, you know, one position to the next. Um, but he, you know, the Paris consulship is one he really wants. He begins to bother James Blaine to such an extent and pesters him and pesters him and shows up at dinner parties and talks to James's wife, talks to Garfield's wife. He goes and bothers them at, like, on the street. So this is why he doesn't want to shoot Garfield in front of his wife. Because he's like, I'm friends with his wife. There's no reason for me to do that to her. I don't want to hurt her. Exactly. We're, we're buds. Exactly. That's insane. So he eventually bothers James Blaine to the point where Blaine turns, turns him around, looks him dead in the eye, and snaps at him. Do not speak to me of the consulship again. Or something similar to that. And Gitovis devastated he's incredibly surprised he's incredibly angry he didn't know why he just thought james blaine was busy and he would get to it so he decides to go visit james garfield but by that time garfield's private secretary and that's a really cool story as well but unfortunately i can't get into that but garfield's private secretary a young man of 21 years old has already been told, do not let this guy in. He is banned. You can't see him. And Guiteau hits a wall. Guiteau is now, not unlike in the commune, the only person in the free love commune that no one wants to sleep with, Guiteau is now one of the only people in America not allowed to go see the president. And he's one of the only people searching for an office who's not getting one. Everyone is going to get a little something in this situation. But he's overreaching to such an extent. He's not going to get anything. Yeah. And not only that, these guys who he thinks are his friend, he thinks owe him, have turned him down. This is in May of 1881. He returns to his boarding house, prays for a bunch of weeks, doesn't leave his room, begins losing a lot of weight. He was already thin to begin with. He's spiraling. He's spiraling. And on the 8th of June, he decides to purchase a gun. When he goes to the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station on July 2nd, 
he had actually had a fairly normal day beforehand. He had went to the park. He had spent some of his last money on a nice breakfast. He was wearing a nicer suit when in the railroad station, even though he was obviously nervous and many witnesses describe him as being clearly fidgety. He sits down, gets his shoes blackened and shined. Um, the armory of DC, the guy who controls um, like the, the federal army in Washington, DC, who happens to be um, Sherman, the brother of the, or brother or the general himself. There's two Shermans in the story, I keep getting mixed up. But he writes a letter to the armory saying, I'm about to do something that's gonna get me a lot of attention and there's probably going to be a mob after me. But you're a stalwart. You're my bud. Mm. You're going to protect me. Still calling in political favors. Exactly. He thinks that he should be protected because he has come into the dis come to the mind, come to the decision that the only way to save the Republican Party is to remove evil men like Garfield. It's not that men ironically men who don't pay their debts. Basically, yes. He is a stalwart. That is the way his political system should be. That is how he firmly believes the world should work, this patronage system. Well, Garfield, who is not a stalwart, mind you, nor really a half-breed, but he's kind of in between, denies him that system. He's a quarter-breed. He's a quarter-breed, thoroughbred, something like that. He denies him that opportunity to do what he wants to do, and that's his logic. When he writes his little, you can kind of think of it as a manifesto, it's only like 20 words long, he describes the murder of Garfield like this. He says that life is but a fleeting dream. Garfield will die anyway. I am simply speeding up the process. It's actually not going to be a big deal for his wife if I kill him not in front of her because she, he's just going to die anyway. I'm doing this to save the Republican Party. I'm doing this to save the stalwart faction. I am a stalwart of stalwarts. I am saving the country. I will be praised. I will be loved. My celebrity will be forever known. So when he goes into the station to shoot Garfield, that's on his mind. He hires a cab to send him to the jail. He pays someone before he shoots Garfield to immediately drive him to the jail so he can be protected. He knows he's going to go to jail. He knows not everybody's going to agree with him. There's people in the the world who think he's evil he just he knows he needs to make it to the jail so he thinks that in time he will be seen for the hero that he is he knows the immediate reaction is negative but he thinks that the arc of history is long and bends towards Gateau. it might even be the short arc of history he thinks that the overwhelming opinion is going to be on his side and in, this is where the tragedy begins this this man walks up behind the president and apparently he had his jaw clenched in determination. The first shot misses, the second shot goes right into the back and actually just goes and makes a huge, brutal channel through Garfield's body. Mm. Comes in on the right side, this will matter later, and actually embeds on the left side. It goes right past the spine and embeds itself after going through the wall of the abdomen causing a hemorrhage. Um, it embeds itself right behind the pancreas, which... I've recently learned you don't mess with. So operating on this is very difficult. Guiteau immediately turns and runs away as there's that moment of panic and screaming as everyone tries to figure out what's just happening. A bunch of people start calling out, he did it, he did it, catch him. Um, the police officer had, that Garville had just spoken to about the train being late tackles Guiteau, and they manage to 
pick him up and the mob starts to swarm toward Guiteau and the officer, knowing that his job is now to protect a murderer, which is a horrible position to be in. Yeah, I feel like your, your heart's probably not in it. You always need to know, though, at this point, is there other people involved? That yeah. kind of thing. At least you can steel yourself to, is there a conspiracy going on? You don't know what actually is happening. Yeah, I need to keep this person alive so that we can find out why this just happened and if anybody else is responsible. Guiteau gives the police officer his letter saying, send me to the armory so and send me to the jail. Release the, the, the soldier so I'll be protected from this mob. Um, and they whisk him away. At the same time... All according to plan for him. Exactly. Actually, 100% all according to plan. And at the same time, Garfield is on his side, on the floor of a dirty train station, vomiting and dying. Garfield's a big, strong man. He's like six foot one, 220 pounds. He's a big dude. And it takes a lot of people to carry him. But one of the first things that happens while he's still on the floor of the dirty train station is a doctor gets called in from the White House or from, from D.C. The first thing the doctor does is stick his hand into the wound and try to find the bullet. In the, at this time in history, what's more frustrating than anything else is they know, at least in Europe and at least in some part of the medical community in the United States, they know what infection is. Not they know that an infection is an inflamed part of the body. They know what causes it. They know that germs exist. They can't see them. They don't know what they are. They know they exist, which is kind of an interesting way to figure them out. Something that I can't see is causing something, and it's causing something bad. And not only that, but the doctors at the time, their practices were deliberately causing infection. And in the United States, we were way late, apparently, to figuring this out. And there was still a debate going on between the theories of Joseph Lister, of Listerine fame, and the more old-school surgical group that were more about using their blood and pus-covered aprons as tokens of their profession, who found value in how much blood and pus came out of a wound because the body was doing what it was supposed to do, and those who thought, perhaps sanitizing our equipment is a good thing? This is a hindsight is twenty twenty, but even yeah, at the sure. time, people were getting angry because it was no longer hindsight. They, the hump had gone over, and people were still being... Doctors were still being too reckless. Reckless. Even yeah. some that decided to sterilize their equipment would then drop it on the ground and pick it up and keep using it. They just didn't see the connection. So when Garfield's being treated, already these things are happening. They eventually get Garfield back up to a room and they they start to check on him. And the guy who becomes Garfield's lead physician, his name is Willard Bliss. Last name of Bliss, Doctor Bliss, and the guy just decides that this is his moment in history. You could probably do a grandier episode on him because this doctor that comes in and treats Garfield takes over. He wasn't even that important of a guy. He just happened to be the doctor they got called. Yeah, and he he did have, you know, some credentials and things, but he took over, and people were so distraught originally that because he was so quick to say, I'm in charge, that he basically became in charge forever. And he slowly becomes like the only guy allowed to work on Garfield. Bliss did not believe in the germ theory at all. It had obvious repercussions. 
Garfield is put into a room and is repeatedly over the course of his slow decline over that summer poked and prodded mercilessly they they keep seeing signs of infection they keep poking their fingers men man after man originally doctor after doctor pokes their hands into the wound and starts to try to find it they literally make a long like six inch tube from poking him so many times trying to find his bullet on the right side of his body in the autopsy they find it on the left side of his body Garfield seems to do okay for a while. His health goes up and down. His fever spikes and goes back to normal and spikes and goes back to normal. But the doctors are fixated on finding that bullet. Bliss is fixated on getting that bullet. And so he's repeatedly poking it and trying to just search and search and search. And eventually, Garfield stops having any sort of good day. And he starts becoming an incredible pain. And he is suffering. Now, apparently he's actually a like, really good patient. He's a kind man. He's trying to crack jokes. When people are starting to wonder about Bliss, he goes, no, he's the doctor. He should know what he's doing. He's very real, welcoming, congenial. In the process of trying to find the bullet, though, because they thought that the bullet was causing some of these problems, even though it had been well-insisted and cauterized at that point, they actually send out for Alexander Graham Bell, the really? inventor of the telephone. Yeah who was a famous inventor, Edison-like, probably better than Edison, um, to try to find the bullet. And Bell invents the first metal detector to try to find the bullet inside Garfield. That's that's kind of awesome. And when you read how he invented it, it's really complex. It's hard to understand. It, it It's so cool. It's basically like a reverse telephone on a, on a stick. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. But it's not quite powerful enough to pick up lead because unfortunately lead is not very metallic you look at where lead is on the periodic table it's way over by the metalloids by the non-metals exactly it's it's like it's why it's good for pipes it bends and it can flatten and all that it doesn't really respond metallically bell would complain that if the bull had been made of silver or copper or anything like that he would have found it instantly instead he has to make this ultra powerful machine and it fails and the process actually makes Garfield worse. Mind you, this is also August and September, or sorry, July and August in Washington, D.C., and Garfield is in the worst possible position in a fully closed-up room with no ventilation. At that time, people worried that bad air would cause sickness. That would eventually produce sewer systems, so the bad air would be kept away, which you know, indirectly help people not drink bad water and get typhoid yeah, and things like that. They're right, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and I'm going to just give people a pass in history on that one. You did the right <laughs> thing. You did these massive projects to get rid of the great stink in you know 1850s London. It was the first time they figured that out after the Romans figured it out 1,500 years before that. Right. The or great stink. The great stink, yeah. But Garfield's in this closed-up, hot room, and they actually invent the first air conditioner as well to keep him comfortable it's like 95 degrees in that room with no ventilation alexander graham bell is so much cooler than edison is alexander graham bell didn't do that air conditioning he oh. just did the um dang it the metal detector but they got a crew that's of still like, impressive a group of engineers who in basically take an ice box and find a way to shoot air through an, a collection of ice into a bunch of like soaked screens 
um, the basic principle of that's not too hard to understand. It's right. getting a big enough machine to produce a good enough current of air. Unfortunately, it was so loud that Garfield couldn't sleep, and that made him even worse because he was getting weak. Right. He's starting to lose weight. He's starting to develop all these little pustules all over his body. Abscesses start to form on his face and on his mm. back as this process is happening. They're just trying to keep him comfortable. They do eventually find a way to make the air conditioner work, and the first truly functional and quiet air conditioning unit is installed in the White House because of this. And all it can do is get the room about 80 degrees. But summer in D.C., 80 degrees is Shangri-La. Yeah, it's way better. Oh, yeah. All the while, while Garfield is suffering and dying, Guiteau is in a jail cell. And he's relishing the fame. He loves it. Meanwhile, the public hates him. There is a mob outside the jail. Earlier, Early on in his jail tenure, one of the guards tries to shoot him. Really? Partly because Guiteau was such a jerk mm. and so arrogant the entire time. He is interesting. He is important for a brief moment. But he doesn't see the importance as because he is a villain. He sees himself as being a savior. Well, all he's, he's believed he was important in his entire life with no reason to actually believe so, except that he believes it. All of a sudden, he's getting actual attention and notoriety. All of a sudden, people who don't know him care who he is. When you've put so much stock into your own importance, it's going to be tough for you to care whether or not these people like you. You're just now you're validating a, a, a belief that you have like shoved into your psyche for so long. And those few letters that are sent to him that support mm. him, which there yeah. were some. Apparently, there were there, actually quite a few. There always will be. There always will be. That stokes his ego. Um, it was unfortunate. Guiteau gets interviews from various reporters and journalists, newspapermen. During these interviews, he's incredibly particular about the way they ask him questions. He won't let them interrupt him when he's in the middle of his pointless diatribes about something. He, he requires photographers to only get him at certain angles, only the right side of my face kind of things. Mm -hmm. So even the reporters hate him, and they're getting you know their job out of this guy. Yeah, a, a very good week for their job, too very interesting time period yeah prison is actually good on him because he had spent so much time in poverty that sitting in prison and eating multiple square meals a day he gains 10 pounds he was so threadbare before that he thinks this is the best time in his life and he's excited to go to trial meanwhile garfield's suffering and dying after about a month and a half of suffering and having his infection get worse and worse and worse Garfield is no longer able to eat. He basically vomits every day. He's incredibly dehydrated. And of course, their, Dr. Bliss's method of treating his dehydration is give him whiskey and brandy, sometimes anally. In fact, the common way that they were giving him his food because they knew he couldn't keep it down was they would try to give him it rectally. They'd mix beef bullion with whiskey or oatmeal or something like that and you know, insert it into him, hoping it would absorb. Um, it some of that is actually kind of true. I mean, your the the rectum does absorb some 
liquid. And that right, probably right. just kept him alive for longer because he wasn't getting any nutrition out of this. He just was not as dehydrated. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen the news. I know, I know that you can put alcohol in that way to, to certain effect. I don't think the same applies for like a roast ham. Not at all. <laughs> but that's the kind of things they were doing to him. And none of it was working. And all of it's starting to clearly show that Dr. Bliss does not know what he's doing. He was a legitimate doctor. I'm not discounting that. He's just in over his head. He's in over his head, and the practices at the time, when actually put in to true use, don't really work. I mean, this is a guy who felt the way to treat an open wound was to put warm water on it and then open it up to the air. That is the actual, way to make a human Petri dish. Yep, is the actual opposite of what you're supposed to do. Dry Kept away from air. I mean, yep. the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And so when you see these practices put into their you know, their actual use, it doesn't work. It's incredibly depressing to read about because this goes on for days. And there's a man in pain through this. And what's worse is there was really no reason behind it. There's a good quote from the book Destiny of the Republic by Candace Millard that I think summarizes the way people thought about this situation. And it goes like this. It was devastatingly clear that there was nothing and no one to blame for Garfield's assassination. In no man's mind, save the assassins, had the shooting achieved anything. It had not been carried out in the name of personal or political freedom, national unity, or even war. It had addressed no wrong, been the consequence of no injustice. Garfield's shooting had also revealed to the American people how vulnerable they were. In the little more than a century since its inception, the United States had become a powerful and respected country. Yet Americans suddenly realized that they had no real control over their own fate. Not only could they not prevent a tragedy of such magnitude, they couldn't even anticipate it. The course of their lives could be changed in an instant by a man who did not even understand what he had done. After clearly entering the road far from recovery. Garfield requests to go to the ocean with that hope of the brisk sea air, the bracing sea air, would help to cure him. Or maybe just to get away from where he was because he had too many sick days there. Right. They basically invent a new kind of train to get him to where he is. They lay new track. They actually, like, bulldoze people's yards to lay train tracks up to the ocean so they can get him there. They managed to get him to New Jersey is where they end up sending him because that's where it's a little cooler and nice ocean. And he eventually dies of uh, septicemia, which is blood poisoning. His blood was infected from the 9,000 different infections the doctors had given him. When they gave him the autopsy, most of the doctors still did not believe that they had caused the infection and they firmly believed until the day they died. That it was the bullet? It was the bullet severed his spine and had caused an infection there. And so now we're at the last stage of our saga. Because Guito now has officially become a murderer, his charge is no longer attempted murder. It's murder. It's yeah, first that's degree. fair. He's being held this entire time, but he hasn't actually been charged with murder yet. No. He goes to trial. And here is where he demonstrates his true nature. No one would defend him. 
no one would stand forward and say, I will defend this clearly murderous person. Most people thought he was insane. Recently, the way that a couple of assassins of European heads of state had gotten out of being you know, sent to the gallows was by claiming insanity. And even just like the second or third guy claimed temporary insanity as the way of saying, I'm not culpable for my actions. I was insane. I don't think people would have an issue with that as a way of getting out of you know, a murder charge if the person claiming insanity was clearly, consistently insane, frothing mad, and had been for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it's these bouts of temporary insanity clouding judgment that become difficult for people to stomach. And I think this, this argument has not been solved in modern times. Eventually, Guiteau's brother-in-law man by the name of Scoville, just like the pepper chart. Yeah. Isn't that guy? I don't think so. No. He becomes Guiteau's defense lawyer, and they argue for temporary insanity. Not full insanity. Right. Guiteau firmly believed that Mm -hmm. he had been sane his entire life until the decision came upon him in May of 1881. Once he assassinated or shot, in this case, at that time, James Garfield, he felt that his mind cleared and he was completely sane again. And then the public would respect him. Already he's pretty well aware that he's not the beloved person he thought he would be. But he's That still, reality is starting to set in a little bit. Yeah, and he's still, but he's still relishing his moment in the spotlight. His trial is very, very long. And there's a great primary source on it. You can actually read the entire trial online. And he's in, he's just, I had to catch myself to say he's insane because I mean that more in a you know slang way. But it, his behavior at the trial is so bizarre. He wouldn't shut up. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to describe it. They would try to talk to somebody on the stand they being his lawyer or the prosecuting lawyers, and he would interrupt them. He would especially interrupt his brother-in-law, his lawyer, and belittle him and yell at him and insult him in the middle of the trial the entire time. He's always referred to as the prisoner. And they quote him word for it because there's a stenographer writing this all in shorthand. Mm -hmm. So you can see exactly how he spoke, which is really cool. In a time period before you really could record sound, I know exactly the way he formed his words. And he was eloquent. There's no other way to describe him. He could be clearly charismatic and eloquent. He frequently made the audience laugh by insulting his prosecutor or agreeing with the judge in some form of really quick quip. He would pass notes to the people in the audience. He'd pass notes to reporters. In one of the notes he passes to a reporter, he requests... um, It's basically a singles ad. He says, I want a good Christian woman who's not too old. Insert all sorts of witticisms that you can right now. He expected to be exonerated. Right. Especially in this scenario, I'm sure he's going, every time he gets any amount of a laugh or anything, he's going, this is the beginning of the the turning of the tide. This is is the beginning of my great ascension to to absolution and to like herodom. The prosecution pulls up onto the stand hundreds of people. If someone had just as much as said, bless you to him after he sneezed on the street, they were up on the stand. And they all say 
the same thing. No, we, we do not believe he was insane. The prosecution does not want him to be insane. Right. They want to charge him and hang him. Right. And the most interesting part about the, the trials when they bring up psychologists and there's a psychologist duel between the you know, lead minds of the age deciding, is this man insane or not? On one side, you have the psychologists, many of whom had studied in Europe. Again, Europe's way ahead of the United States at this point in terms of scientific study. And they're saying, yes, he's clearly insane. And they ask, okay, how do you know? And the one guy I read, he described, he knew that Guiteau was insane because of the shape of his head. The shape of his head and the imbalance of his facial features. He, could, he had an awkward smile, and therefore he was insane. And that's like the kind of the crux of his argument. And there's others that have much more normal, as we'd see him, arguments. But there's a lot of that in the he's insane group. But then they bring in others who are psychologists as well who say, no, he's not insane. He's just morally deprived. Sorry, depraved. Right. He's morally depraved. His moral depravity has developed due to his constant bad deeds, his bad life's choices and over time that has caught up to him he became a jealous man after he didn't get this position and he murdered garfield out of spite it's obvious from the very beginning of the trial that he is going to be charged with murder it only takes a short time i think it's less than an hour for the jury to charge him with murder it's only then that gito realizes what's happening he actually almost cheerfully walks to the gallows he stubs his toe walking up the steps and giggles about it. And when he is standing there with the noose around his neck, he sees an opportunity to read a poem. And it's just a repetition of, oh, lordy, lordy, over and over and over again, hallelujah. Lordy, lordy, hallelujah, over and over again with little words dropped in. You can read it um, online. It's just It's really repetitive. And he says it's, his imitation of a child calling out to his father, just like he's now calling out to God. So he claims that he wrote this. He, he claims he edited it enough that he wrote it. He obviously right. plagiarized it. Right. Even he kind of admits that. Because what, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Yeah, Hang him. <laughs> and they do. <laughs> they hang him and he dies. Almost exactly a year after he assassinates Garfield. They hang him in July of 1882. The question I now have to ask you is, do you think Charles Guiteau was insane? I'm not convinced insane people have the amount of self-preservation that he has. I think that his ability to swindle throughout his entire life, his ability to plan for his own safety the day of shooting the president, his ability to join and leave that con that that that, that cult that 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 free love community that commune in his life, all of those all of his behaviors all of his actions all of his personality traits and deficits and whatever else, they they do point to depravity, they do point to whatever that's supposed to mean they they do point to a profoundly perhaps disturbed individual. But I don't know if it points to insanity. I don't know. I also don't know that if that's the definition of insanity, should that change 
the sentencing anyways. Like if somebody like this can be found insane, should that keep them off of the gallows? Should that keep them out of prison? Should it send them to a mental asylum instead? Right. Like if a person like this can be found insane, somebody who has managed to survive this long on the merits of swindling and kind of hackneyed half attempted like law and everything else if he is insane kind of doesn't matter he did the deed yeah exactly he knew what he did yeah he didn't he didn't wake up with no notion of what he had done once again it's almost like who cares like the reality of the situation is a man who had pestered the president, who had met the president, who had campaigned for the president, made a choice to to buy a gun, to stalk, and to shoot and kill the president. This is not, if temporary insanity, it is not an isolated episode. It is not, it is not seeing red and waking up with no memory of what happened. It's not, even with insanity, it's not a man sleeping in the in like amongst the trash behind the building with nowhere to go. He's going about his life with this obsessive, vindictive feeling. He had been pushing for jobs in the White House, and when he was snubbed, he made a decision. That's not, he's not insane. He's, he's petty, and he, there's a clear line where Blaine and Garfield put down that wall of like, no more. Don't talk to us about these jobs anymore. This is not where your future is. And he must have heard that as, you are not important. You have felt important your entire life and no one has ever listened, but you knew it. And now your last inroad to proving that that's true is, is coming up false. And you now have to take, and, and then he takes this, this other route to importance. That's not insane. No, it's not. It's not insane. And if, if that's the route he takes, it, it, shows, it shows a very sane route. It shows a, this is my only path to really being remembered to really having an impact. And I think that's the only aspect of Guiteau that is consistent. Exactly. He he knew he was special. He knew he was chosen. That's what he was. So the insanity behind Guiteau, because I do believe that he was at least tinged by insanity, was that is disconnected from reality. And there is plenty of evidence in his life in front of him. He's the one who lived that life that he was not special. He was about as unimportant and imperfect and unspectacular as possible. It's hard to not think of him as insane when that is the core of his decision-making process. As rationally and, I think, with full sanity, that he can approach these things it's like he has all the components of a personality, but they're all in the wrong order. It kind of does ask the question of like, how do we define sanity and rational thought and rational decision making? And like I said, like what, what does that mean for accountability? Because I think that every single person who he stole money from believed that they deserved that money back, that he deserved accountability for taking their money. And I'm sure that he had attempted to rejoin that convent or that, that, uh, that commune that 
if they had not wanted him back, they would have gone, no, you made choices and we don't, we don't have to deal with you. We, we are not obliged to, to suffer your, your delusions, to suffer your, your obsessive beliefs that you are important. And if all, if all of these other facets of his life, he deserves to be held accountable, then in this, it's only consistent. Then I think a good way to sum this up is actually what the district attorney said, basically the summary at the end of his speech, when he said after Guiteau was sentenced to death, I think it's right along those lines. So the district attorney, man by the last name of Corkhill, said, the unlawful killing of any reasonable creature by a person of sound memory and discretion with malice afterthought, either expressed or implied, is murder. The motives and intentions of an individual who commits a crime are of necessity known to him alone. No human power can penetrate the recesses of the heart. No eye but the eye of God can discern the motives for human action. Hence the law wisely says that a man's motives shall be judged by from his acts. So that if one kill another suddenly, without any provocation, the law implies malice. End quote. I think that's the end. You can't, can't argue that just because someone didn't connect the dots properly doesn't mean that the murder of another human being should go unpunished. The action implies malice. We have a man who feels he is chosen, who is ironically never chosen, assassinating a man who had never intended to be chosen for anything important in his life. Guiteau assassinating Garfield. Instead of the man who had risen from poverty, became a general, became a president, had a large and loving family, and had a potentially great future as the most powerful man in the United States, a man whose integrity was unquestioned in most cases up until that point. He's not the famous one here. In the end, Guiteau got what he wanted. He got his notoriety. He became famous. It's on the wrong side of history. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Footnotes. To learn more about Gateau and Garfield, you can purchase the resources used for the research of this episode in our show notes. To discuss this episode, you can join us in our Facebook group, also in the show notes. If you've got the time, we would love it if you would leave us an iTunes review. It really helps the show out. We'll see you next time, and until then, take care.